This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. It's funny how things build up, how they leak out, finally reaching us. A couple returned to my village from their winter in the Philippines. She grew up there. She is Filipino. They had never been so hot and so dry. They are religious, and they prayed for at least a cloud to get relief from the relentless sun. Then I get an email from a radio friend abroad. He's Robin Upton, the producer who revived the deep alternative show Unwelcome Guests when Lynn Gary retired. Google it or go to unwelcomeguests.net. As an aside, Robin said the heat was in the unbearable range, over 35 degrees C or 95 Fahrenheit. That became the daily normal, flaring up above that from time to time. Upton was writing from his adopted home in Bangladesh. A headline flickered in my brain, a one-off story asking if India was experiencing the worst drought ever, and they've had some doozies. Or maybe it was just the worst since 2002. Hundreds are dying of the heat. Fields have burned off dry. The only hope for millions, maybe hundreds of millions, is an above-average monsoon season this June to September. May the rains come. In the meantime, in parts of the state of Maharashtra, a criminal law forbids more than five people at a time at any water supply. The authorities fear conflict, maybe violence. Vietnam flashes up in my news and Twitter feed. Along with India and Bangladesh, Vietnam is going through a hot, punishing, dry period. The country is normally a major rice exporter. This year, not. A band of suffering has taken over South Asia. Yes, it's partly because of El Nino, but a super El Nino, adding its might to the upward pace of global warming. That is one of the world emergencies being blotted out of our minds and screens by endless celebrity trivia and fake political choices. During this past week, climate scientist Paul Beckwith ventured into our darker places. Paul is frustrated with scientists who are constantly surprised that the climate beast is roaring already in so many ways. The global community has had 21 COP meetings, the conference of the parties to a treaty that has done nothing to stop escalating emissions and committed to a climate-damaged future. Maybe, Paul wonders, a regional nuclear exchange between that hot, dry India and Pakistan would stir up enough dust to block just enough sun to cool us down for a few years. The dust of a decent-sized explosion would spread throughout the Northern Hemisphere, likely cooling the planet an astounding one to one and a half degrees within weeks. It might put a halt to the wildly growing melting of Greenland. The cooling might save at least the last of the reflective Arctic ice cap. Paul explains we have lots of nuclear weapons. It wouldn't cost anything. Just one big one from Russia or America would do the job as well. The cooling would last at least five years, maybe ten. Of course, then the world would jump up to new heat levels because... We've just hidden another 10 years of huge greenhouse gas emissions under that nuclear cloud. Maybe we'd have to blow off two the next time, and so on. As Beckwith stands in front of a screen explaining nuclear winter, I spy in the right-hand corner another graphic. It explains the nuclear explosion would also demolish most of the protective ozone layer in the northern hemisphere. 
People who go outside without wearing a protective bag would ratchet up their risk of cancer coming soon. Everyone would have to wear eye protection to prevent blindness, at least everyone who could afford the special sunglasses. The whole project goes crazy, and Paul knows that. I think he's just telling us how serious the climate shift is, how we are deluding ourselves about climate action, and the fact that we are not ready to cool the planet in this emergency. All this brings me to James Hansen. Many of you know Dr. Hansen, the former director of the Goddard Space Center of NASA. He's the man who warned the U.S. Congress about dangerous climate change in 1988. He's struggled with this threat ever since. Last summer, Hansen and a collection of prestigious academics around the world broke scientific protocol by publicly speaking about their research. Paul Beckwith did a series of nine videos at that time to explore and explain what Hansen and his co-scientists were saying. Find that video series on YouTube or at paulbeckwith.net. This March, the group officially published their study. It's about ice melt, and it's about major storms, and it's about sea level rise. It got some press. It's huge. Why haven't I said anything about it on Radio Ecoshock? There are problems. First of all, I invited Dr. Hansen to appear on this program. I got no reply. He's crazy busy. I have no inside track to reach him. Hansen can pick his world media for appearances, maybe the New York Times or the BBC. Secondly, there's been a fairly strong chorus of criticism of this paper from other scientists. Of course, a few complained that the process was broken. But Hansen says this scientific warning is much too important to wait a year before telling the population what is coming. Other scientists simply disagree either with his conclusions or his method of reaching them. A few have said, for example, that Hansen and team did not reach their vision of an ultra-stormy future in a ruined atmosphere by using models. But then Hansen explains the weakness in all models, including his. The paper refers to evidence of superstorms that could move 1,000-ton boulders inland from the shore. We can see these mysterious boulders on Caribbean islands. This is part of the paleoclimate record, but there are questions about how the Hansen team connected those times to these times. It is possible that the vision of dangerous and damaged decades to come was assumed rather than proven, and Hansen talks about his assumptions. At that point, and really before then, I realize I'm just not skilled enough to judge. Plus, I think Hansen can be mistaken at times. I think his promotion of nuclear energy as a solution to global warming is deeply mistaken. That is partly why I haven't covered this story. Another angle is the deep feeling that I might not be able to bear knowing what Hansen knows. You see, we've all been sold a picture of slowly developing climate change. In countless interviews, scientists have cautioned that melting glaciers like Greenland and Antarctica will take hundreds of years at least. The global mean temperature has only been going up slowly. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is discussing how we can still burn more fossil fuels in the next couple of decades. Maybe we'll peak and gradually come down with quite survivable impacts. The seas will only rise slowly, they say. It's the mantra of changes in geologic time. If James Hansen is right, all this is wrong. The stakes are enormous, far larger than anything humans have ever experienced bigger than the Earth has seen in more than 50 million years, the speed of change may be absolutely new. I'm slowly collecting my files and links on the Hansen paper. 
He's gone to the press saying, James Hansen is not an extremist. The science is what it is. The rapid changes we are seeing today speak loudly. On March 21st, Hansen put out a video on YouTube explaining the work. It's 15 minutes long. If I can't interview the man, we still need to hear him speak. Here is Dr. James Hansen with Ice Melt, Sea Level Rise, and Superstorms, the video abstract. Hi, I'm Jim Hansen, Director of the Climate Science Awareness and Solutions Program at Columbia University Earth Institute. I want to discuss some implications of the paper, Ice Melt, Sea Level Rise, and Superstorms, that is being published in Atmospheric Chemistry and Physics, a paper on which I have 18 exceptional American and international co-authors. We have uncovered information and a partial understanding of feedbacks in the climate system, specifically interactions between the ocean and the ice sheets. These feedbacks raise questions about how soon we will pass points of no return, in which we lock in consequences that cannot be reversed on any time scale that people care about. Consequences include sea level rise of several meters, which we estimate could occur this century, or at latest next century, if fossil fuel emissions continue at a high level. That would mean loss of all coastal cities, most of the world's large cities, and all their history. A more immediate threat is the likelihood of shutting down the ocean's overturning circulations in the North Atlantic and Southern Oceans. That's where superstorms come in. Let me explain. We use climate modeling, paleoclimate data, that's Earth's ancient climate history, and modern observations of the ocean and ice sheets to study effects of ice melt on Greenland and Antarctic ice shelves, tongues of ice extending from Antarctica into the Southern Ocean. Greenland and Antarctica are beginning to melt because of global warming. So far, it's just a tiny, tiny fraction of the ice sheets that has melted. However, this fresh meltwater spilling out onto the North Atlantic and into the Southern Ocean already is having important effects. We conclude that light fresh water added to the upper layers of the ocean is already beginning to shut down North Atlantic deep water formation and Antarctic bottom water formation. This will have enormous consequences in future decades if full shutdown is allowed to occur. United Nations IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, does not report these effects for two reasons. First, most models used by IPCC simply exclude ice melt. Second, we conclude that most models, ours included, are less sensitive than the real world to added freshwater because most models have excessive small-scale ocean mixing, which reduces the effect. The surface manifestation of slowdown of the deep circulations is cooling in the North Atlantic southeast of Greenland and in the Southern Ocean. These coolings are prominent in our model by the middle of the 21st century. However, on multiple grounds, we conclude that the real world responds faster to fresh water than the models do. First, let's note that North Atlantic cooling, if the overturning circulation shuts, shuts down entirely, will have large effects. The tropics continue to warm as CO2 increases. If Greenland freshwater shuts down deep water formation and cools the North Atlantic several degrees, the increased horizontal temperature gradient will drive superstorms stronger than any in modern times. All hell will break loose in the North Atlantic and neighboring lands. 
Such a situation occurred in the last interglacial period, 118,000 years ago. The tropics were about one degree warmer than today because Earth's spin axis was tilted less than today. Ocean core data show that deep water formation shut down, the North Atlantic cooled, and there's evidence of powerful superstorms at about that time, powerful enough for giant waves to toss 1,000-ton megaboulders onto the shore in the Bahamas. Some scientists think these boulders may have been tossed by a tsunami, but we present multiple lines of evidence that the boulders and other geologic features are best explained as the result of superstorms. An important point is that if we let ice melt from Greenland become large enough to fully shut down the AMOC, the Atlantic Overturning Circulation, it will be permanent as far as the public is concerned. It takes several centuries for AMOC uh, to get moving again. However, superstorms will not be the most important consequence of global warming if it continues to grow. The most important effect will be sea level rise. Here, too, the most complete analysis must account for paleoclimate data, which shows that ice sheets, when they disintegrate, can go quickly, nonlinearly, yielding multimeter sea level rise in a century. Even when the climate forcing is weaker than the human-made climate forcing. We show that paleoclimate, from paleoclimate data, that most ice sheet models are more lethargic than the real world, in which sea level is known to have risen rapidly many times. So instead of using an ice sheet model, we simply assume that when warming occurs driven by a growing climate forcing, the rate of ice melt will grow nonlinearly. We test several alternative growth rates. What we find are amplifying feedbacks, just what is needed to feed nonlinear ice melt growth. Greenland meltwater reduces the density of surface water, thus reduces sinking of water to the deep ocean. As meltwater grows, it shuts down the ocean conveyor, as Wally Broker calls it. More important for sea level is what is happening around Antarctica. Sinking of heavy, salty, cold water near the Antarctic coast normally forms Antarctic bottom water, thus also bringing relatively warm water to the surface where it releases heat to the atmosphere and space. But now, as fresh meltwater from Antarctic ice shelves increases, it tends to put a cold, low-density lid on the Southern Ocean. This reduces exchange with the surface, so the heat stays in the ocean, raising the temperature of ocean water at the depth of ice shelves and amplifying feedback. In a global perspective, cold freshwater lenses around Antarctica increase the planet's energy imbalance. The added energy goes into the ocean, where it is available to melt ice shelves. These feedbacks support our conclusion that melt in response to strong forcing will be nonlinear. These feedbacks, with meltwater driving subsurface warming, also help us understand and gain a consistent picture of rapid nonlinear climate oscillations in the paleoclimate record. Paleoclimate data makes clear that when ice sheets melt, they can go fast. However, we do not know 
the characteristic time for the nonlinear ice sheet response to growing climate forcings. Eventually, ice sheet models may give us an answer, but for now, our best guide is observations. Unfortunately, records of growing annual mass loss by the ice sheets are short. The Greenland data can be fit as well by 10-year or 20-year doubling times. But already, Greenland is losing several hundred cubic kilometers of ice per year. Feedbacks for Greenland with its surface melt are different than for Antarctica, but there are several amplifying feedbacks. Greenland responds to global warming will be nonlinear, but likely with a different characteristic doubling time. Antarctic mass loss is smaller. Most melting so far is ice shelves, which does not show up in gravity satellite measurements of mass change. However, as ice shelves disappear, the discharge of the non-floating ice will accelerate. If ice sheet mass loss has a 10-year doubling time, meter scale sea level rise would be reached in about 50 years, and multimeter sea level rise a decade later. 20-year doubling time would require about 100 years. The data records are too short. But if we wait until the real world reveals itself clearly, it may be too late to avoid sea level rise of several meters and loss of all coastal cities. I doubt that we have passed a point of no return, but frankly, we are not certain of that. There's an analogous, but I believe more imminent, situation with shutdown of overturning ocean circulations. The cold regions southeast of Greenland and around Antarctica are signs of the beginning of shutdowns of the AMOC in the North Atlantic and the Southern Ocean SMOC. We note that effects of meltwater seem to be occurring one or two decades earlier in the real world than in our model. Why would models be less sensitive to today's ocean's meltwater amounts? We present evidence for excessive small-scale ocean mixing in many models, including ours. One key diagnostic is the climate response time. In 100 years, our model achieves only 60% of its equilibrium response. I have checked three other major climate models, two American and one British, finding similar slow response. However, we have shown that Earth's measured energy imbalance requires the 100-year climate response to be about 75% if equilibrium climate sensitivity is about 3 degrees Celsius, as paleoclimate data show it to be the case. The explanation for why the surface response is so slow in the model is that the model ocean mixes heat too rapidly into the deeper ocean. This same excessive mixing causes the models to be less sensitive to the freshwater lens on the ocean surface, which also tends to mix too fast. There is other data besides Earth's energy imbalance supporting this interpretation, including the sensitivity of paleoclimate to freshwater forcing. However, there's one recent paper that is especially important by Winton and co-authors in 2014 who show that a model with a tenth of a degree spatial resolution fine enough to resolve small-scale ocean motions and avoid parameterized mixing yields a surface temperature response about a quarter larger after 50 to 100 years, consistent with our interpretation. 
It would be valuable if all models would report their surface climate response function as well as their equilibrium climate sensitivity and examine the model sensitivity to a standard rapidly increasing rate of meltwater ejection. The relevance is that I believe we are already witnessing the beginning of this cooling southeast of Greenland and cooling around Antarctica in response to fresh water from ice melt. In that case, observed cooling southeast of Greenland and the extra warming along the United States east coast are not natural fluctuations. When AMOC slows down, it causes both of those. This interpretation implies that Greenland meltwater is already having significant effects. The warm water along the east coast is the reason that Sandy retained hurricane-forced winds all the way up the New York City area. The nearby Atlantic was about 3 degrees Celsius warmer than normal. This unusually warm ocean water has also been able to provide the moisture for recent record snowstorms. These are small effects compared to what happens if AMOC shuts down entirely. So the question arises again, have we passed a point of no return? Is ice melt sure to increase so that AMOC shutdown is a foregone conclusion? I doubt it, but it's conceivable depending on how fast we slow down human-made climate forcing. I think the conclusion is clear. We are in a position of potentially causing irreparable harm to our children, grandchildren, and future generations. This is a tragic situation because it is unnecessary. We could already be phasing out fossil fuel emissions if only we stopped allowing the fossil fuel industry to use the atmosphere as a free dumping ground for their waste. If we collected a gradually rising fee from fossil fuel companies, we could phase over to clean energies. If done right, it would spur the economy and create jobs. But that's a story for another day. But I want to make one final point. This is a complex story, but one with important practical implications. I find that the public sometimes misinterprets our science discussions, how research is done. Skepticism is the lifeblood of science. You can be sure that many scientists, indeed most scientists, will find some aspects in our long paper that they would interpret differently. That's entirely normal. It takes time for conclusions to be agreed upon and details sorted out. So after you have talked to a scientist about this topic, ask him or her a final question. Do you agree that we have reached a dangerous situation? Do you think we may be approaching a point of no return, a situation in which our children inherit a climate system undergoing changes that are out of their control, changes that will cause them irreparable harm. That's the bottom line. Thanks for listening. That was Dr. James Hansen, formerly with NASA, and a leading scientific voice on climate change. In a way, he spoke partly to other scientists, I think. The full impact of what could happen is not explained for the public, although I suppose for a scientist of his caliber to warn all hell will break loose in the North Atlantic, that's pretty clear. Losing most of our coastal cities by the end of this century is plain enough. The time of great storms is left to our imagination. I'm going to reread this paper. 
watch another dozen videos, maybe, listen to the scientific backtalk. I'll come back to this paper when I know more. Meanwhile, the recording of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere at Mauna Loa, Hawaii, hit another frightening record of 409 parts per million. We started at 280 parts per million at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. During most of my life, it has climbed slowly but surely through the 300s. Now it's peaking, so that the new lows will be the old highs. And the new highs have never been seen on Earth for many millions of years. Australia is losing the Great Barrier Reef, or at least parts of it. Greenland has begun its summer melt season in early April. That's another record. Worrying news is pouring in from a wave of scientific papers around the world. My jaw drops. My nerves tingle at least a dozen times a week. No one can keep up with all this. All I know is that it's coming, and we are sleepwalking into a new, more dangerous world. Sometime soon, or maybe it was yesterday, we reach that limit where the damage can never be undone in thousands of years. We are writing our wills for our descendants. Through our actions and inactions, we promise them a damaged atmosphere with unstable weather and strange seas. The bugs, the plants, and the other animals will move and change if they can. The future of our species cannot yet be written, even by the most imaginative science fiction writers or poets of tragedy. Unless we can pull off a miracle of collective action, and I think that is still barely possible, the future will be distorted beyond recognition. That is the only certainty. I'm Alex Smith. And this is Radio EcoShock. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Hi, I'm Alex. This is Radio EcoShock. We talked about the dry heat in East Asia and the possibility of creating dust to cool the world in an emergency. But there is already a long season of smoky haze hanging over a lot of Asia, especially over Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. Unfortunately, that smoke is unlikely to cool anything. It comes from burning tropical forests in the islands of Indonesia. There is black carbon in it, which will soak up sunlight and heat. Even worse, a lot of the fires are actually burning peat, that compact vegetative matter just one step below coal for carbon pollution. When the biggest peat fires erupted in Indonesia in a previous El Nino of 1997-98, it launched Indonesia into the top three greenhouse gas polluters in the world. The peat fires continue as big corporations and small landholders clear and drain the tropical forests, transforming them into palm oil plantations. I got an email from listener Eugen Lee offering to ask the experts why haze was covering Malaysia and Singapore yet again. Eugen is a master's student studying environmental sciences at the University of Cologne in Germany. He carefully crafted this report for Radio EcoShock. First and foremost, a big thank you to Alex Smith and Radio EcoShock for hosting this content. My name's Eugen Lee, and I hope to spread awareness of the now annual haze blanketing Southeast Asia. I'm joined in this debate by several experts on the issues surrounding the haze. Dr. Helena Vaki, Senior Lecturer at the University of Malaya, Alan Tan, Professor of the National University of Singapore Law School, and Dr. Rachel Carmenter, Postdoctoral Fellow at C4. 
the Center for International Forestry Research in Indonesia. Dr. Kamenta, what was the haze like last year? In 2015, when the fires are extensive and the wind is blowing in the right direction, the haze affects Singapore, it affects Thailand, it affects Malaysia, and locally, obviously, the effects are also significant. There was weeks without sun because the air was sort of a yellow, smoky colour. How exactly is this haze produced, Dr. Barbie? There is natural fires, then there's also man-made fires. In the past, before the 1990s, um, we also had transboundary haze, but not very bad. And this was primarily from either natural fires or um, uh, slash and burn fires. But in the recent years, with the agribusiness boom, especially in Indonesia and Malaysia, where there's a huge push for oil palm now, uh, this is where we have uh, a more serious haze because the scale is much larger. So uh, nowadays, the source of it, we can say, is largely man-made. But there are other factors too. Scarcity of land has pushed the agribusiness sector to target peatland for conversion. Once drained, peat soils become the consummate fuel for haze-producing fires. So the haze is heavily sort of uh, influenced by wind direction and also the density of the fires burning and what land they're burning because peatland actually creates more haze than mineral soils. Peatlands are literally wet and flooded. When plantations come in and they want to develop these peatlands, the first thing they must do is they have to drain the peatland. When, when these peatlands are usually wet and then they are dried out, they become very fire prone. Indonesia has been the main source of the haze in recent years, although there are many laws banning the use of open fires, especially in peatland areas. Dr. Vaki's work on patronage politics describes what she calls instrumental friendships between the patrons and their clients, that is to say, the political elite and agribusinesses, such as oil palm plantations. We have uh, a lot of clients, which are agribusiness uh, companies or other individuals within these companies, which have connections, which have friendships with political elite, either at the local level or at the central level. You know, at local means the kabupaten level and central as in the ministry level or even the ministers and all that. So because of these friendships that they have, these plantation companies are able to, number one, get licenses where they're not supposed to get licenses particularly peatlands. And number two, they are able to, if a fire is found on their property, either they did it purposely or accidentally, they can get away with it. They can either delay the police from coming to investigate or they can make sure that if a case goes to court, it's usually, it's usually kicked out very before it gets uh, any decision. There have been numerous attempts to mitigate the haze in terms of national-scale firefighting efforts as well as the Haze Agreement of ASEAN the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, back in 2002. One recent development was the introduction of the Singaporean Transboundary Haze Act in 2014, which allows Singapore to prosecute haze-producing companies in Indonesia that are headquartered or closely linked to Singapore. Professor Tan describes how this works in more detail. The maps that show ownership and control of plantation lands are often inaccurate or contradicting. Contradicting meaning that there could be even more than one map, there could be two or three maps issued by different regional governments or different departments 
that actually show overlapping concessions on the ground. The first legal presumption is that if there are any maps to show that a particular area belongs to a certain company, it shall be presumed under Singapore law that that company owns that piece of land. The second presumption is that if there is meteorological evidence at the time of a particularly bad haze episode in Singapore to show that the winds are blowing generally from the direction of that piece of land in question in the direction of Singapore, it can be presumed under law that the smoke is coming from that particular piece of land. The third legal presumption that completes the puzzle, if you like, is that it shall then be presumed under Singapore law that that offending company will then be responsible for creating that smoke that has drifted into Singapore. In correspondence with the first presumption regarding accurate maps, Indonesia launched what it called the One Map Initiative in order to reduce ambiguity of plantation concessions, but there are significant hurdles in the way. Meteorological evidence, including satellite evidence, will be used, but the reality of course is that satellite evidence pinpointing the hotspots or the fires that occurred on, on certain lands cannot always be 100% uh, accurate. Satellite evidence is almost uh, always compromised if there is bad weather um, or cloudy, uh, excessive cloud formation. And the relationship of smallholders to plantations is a very complicated thing, actually. A lot of these smallholders and, and plantations exist in sort of symbiotic relationship with each other. So the plantations sometimes have smallholders on their land as well. And then their smallholders on their land would, would develop their own trees and sell the plants directly to the plantation. So that is something that it has been going on for many years and it's sort of like a trend. But in terms of this fire, the thing that we often see is that sometimes plantations take advantage of smallholders in the sense that if a fire does occur on plantations, they usually blame the smallholders. Well, under the Singapore Transboundary Haze Pollution Act, the companies can be fined up to $1 million and be made to pay a certain amount of fines for every day that uh, the fires continue to burn. So there are some hefty penalties uh, that are prescribed under the Singapore Transboundary Haze Pollution Act. But again, the, the, the problem is identifying the actual defendants to prosecute and to ensure that the evidence that's presented before the courts is watertight enough to convince the judges that uh, that particular company is to be held liable for a particularly bad haze episode that's afflicting Singapore. This act allows Singaporean external investors to be made culpable for their role in causing indiscriminate open fires and therefore haze, but there are many other stakeholders involved and affected. Dr. Carmenta has identified these stakeholders in Riau, a province in Indonesia. They included sort of the sharecroppers and the landless who were working in the plantations and have some you know, responsibility for those daily actions. Um, of maintaining the plantation and keeping the applying the fertilizer and all these other clearing the land, operating the machinery. Then there are also the smallholders, and they range massively in terms of how much land do they have and how much capital. Also, we tend to talk about a smallholder as though it's one sort of unified group, and actually there's a lot of variation there in power and assets, and also in land. 
We identified the local policy communities, which included the NGOs and the, the different sort of district level government agencies. We also included the Jakarta-based policy community. C4 has found some agreement between these stakeholders on how to tackle the problem phase, such as incentives to plant land more quickly in order to reduce the susceptibility of fire in idle forest areas. There are other solutions, but under more contention. And then the ones which were most contested, but at the same time, on average, most regarded as most effective, they included reflooding peatlands, which would prevent the agricultural expansion that we see because those crops are not water tolerant. That was regarded as effective, but absolutely contested because, of course, the implication then for some of those stakeholders is severe. Another one which is regarded as most effective but contested is revoking road company licences if they're found to be burning. And then, interestingly, actually, the third was um, using canals, expanded use of canals as fire breaks and for firefighting. And that's an action that we saw being pursued, but it's one that um, also there's a lot of disagreement about. Within areas of agreement for the stakeholders, incentivising sustainable development is a hot topic. But how can local incentives be created effectively? Money can be useful, but it has to be directed and targeted at uh, fundamental, sustainable solutions and not just money to be given to smallholders to tell them not to burn. With this in mind, the private sector in Indonesia has launched a fire-free alliance with a performance reward scheme. The community will receive a payment of 100 juta, which is 100 million uh, rupiah, at the end of a year if they didn't have any fire in their jurisdiction. And then they receive half of that reward if they only had small fires. And then that reward is not paid in cash but in kind. And so this model is apparently effective. Uh, the research hasn't been done yet. But this initiative is not without its obstacles. A farmer might want to convert 15 hectares, but actually, if you look at what they have in terms of capital to buy seedlings and to maintain the plot, they couldn't manage, you know, they, they'd not made that equation in an informed way. And so part of this outreach is helping to make a, a stronger business plan. And it can only happen, though, if the land tenure is clear. So I know that that's, land tenure has been a problem for the programme because the company can't help a smallholder to clear land unless the smallholder can demonstrate that the land is theirs. The local economy has also reacted in the way that banks give out loans. So they don't simply want to give out, uh, give out loans unless you can prove that you have sustainable practice. This is a positive development. On the international scene, the UN launched its Red Plus, or reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation scheme in Indonesia in recent years. What does this entail exactly? Well, Red Plus is a payment for performance. It's uh, ultimately a reward, an incentive for good behaviour. And in this case, it would be for avoiding deforestation and degradation and now has expanded to include restoration also. 
The Norwegians already have a Red Plus project in Indonesia that effectively provides money in order to cordon off certain tracts of land for sustainable conservation purposes and to not have those lands be converted for commercial exploitation. But those projects are still very small scale at the moment and appear to be just drops in the ocean. We have a paper writing about the importance of including fire in Red Plus because if you can't account for fire and improve fire management, then that's, that's a big risk to the performance of your project, of your Red Plus initiative. And I, so far as I understand, very few projects in Indonesia do account for fire. Since his inauguration in 2014, Indonesia's President Joko Widodo, or Jokowi, started a seemingly positive shift towards more pro-environmental behaviour, including the launch of the BRG, the Peatland Restoration Task Force Agency, and the merging of the ministries of the environment and forestry. What does the merger spell for the cooperation of the two ministries in the reduction of fires? There hopefully is going to be a more of a check and balance uh, where the environmental concerns should also uh, play a role in uh, giving out licences. But there's also a lot of scepticism because previously, before the Ministry of Environment was part of the Forestry Ministry, the Ministry of Environment was viewed as a very weak ministry without much uh, clout. And the Forestry and Agriculture Ministry usually overrode a lot of the Ministry of Environment's uh, concerns. Much of the aforementioned work by C4 and Dr. Carmenta on evaluating solutions to the haze will be of great value to the BRG, headed by Pak Nazir. The agency clearly shows that peatland restoration is the focus of Indonesia's move towards fire prevention, but it is not without its teething problems. Well, the way I understand from speaking with Pat Nazir last week is that the peatland restoration agency actually has no legal weight. And so even like a, I think a, a question that would come before that one would be how can the Peatland Restoration Agency get these large companies to even rewet any of their land whatsoever? Because they're going to lose, they're going to have to flood their own crops. Dr. Vahi, is there a best solution? I think the policies are all there. The laws are all there, but it's just the implementation. And as I said, the what makes it very difficult, what makes implementation very difficult is patronage. So it requires a really dismantling of this patronage system. And hopefully the change that is bringing about by Jokowi would be able to bring that. Because Jokowi does not come from any traditional uh, long-serving political family. So he's a bit outside from the network. Professor Tan. Well, I don't think that this act can prescribe a long-term solution. They really require deep-seated reform of land use policies of forest and land use management uh, within Indonesia itself. But the reality is that the oil palm and palm and paper plantations continue to generate a lot of revenue for the Indonesian economy. And so that essentially comes in the way of the Indonesian authorities clamping down hard on these actors for their offending activities. Dr. Kamenta? I think it's clear that there will have to be a mix of improved sanctioning, better designed incentive structures, stronger governance and enforcement. That would be facilitated by some clarity on land tenure. And then, of course, 
it will be no one size fits all because the landscapes vary in terms of what stakeholders are present and one incentive structure for one stakeholder is not necessarily going to be appropriate for another. And finally, as palm oil is so pervasive in everyday products, can we as consumers have a direct effect on its sustainable production? Realistically, or if you look at the numbers, most of the palm oil exported from Malaysia and Indonesia, it goes to other parts of the region as well, especially China and India and Middle East. So these consumers, they are not so concerned about where it comes from, whether it's sustainable or not. That's all we have time for. Thank you so much once again to Dr. Helena Vahi, Professor Alan Tan, and Dr. Rachel Carmenta. That was Yu Jin Lee reporting on the problem of continuing haze covering Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia. Under the smoke, endangered creatures like the orangutan and tropical plants, some of them rare, are disappearing as the forests are cut and peatlands burn. My thanks to Eugene for digging into this with original radio for EcoShock listeners. Don't forget you can download this radio report or share it with others using links provided in my blog, posted every Wednesday at ecoshock.info. This is Radio EcoShock. Near the beginning of this program, I mentioned Robin Upton, now a resident of Bangladesh. Robin rescued one of the most popular underground radio shows called Unwelcome Guests. It was founded by New York State resident Lynn Gary, who produced the show for years and years. Unwelcome Guests covers alternative speeches and ideas in depth with a two-hour show each week. You can get it at radioforall.net, that's radio4all.net, or at unwelcomeguests.net. As we play out this week, you will hear just the start of a full program on the work of Ernest Becker. His book, The Denial of Death, won the Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction back in 1974, just before Ernest died. Only the Western culture struggles so hard to deny the reality of death, and I think that is directly connected to our parallel denial of abrupt climate change. Goodbye from me, Alex Smith, for this week. Here's the opening of Unwelcome Guests, program number 726. To the rich man's bright lodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shining Becker writes that humans cause evil by wanting to triumph over evil in the quest for immortality. Our most oppressive and violent and brutal behaviors, uh, Becker says, are responses to our death anxiety. The core problem is that we've got to invest in these worldviews and then we've got to defend them. And in defending them, we often end up hurting others. The most brutal and primitive style of coping with death is to dream that you can master it by killing or destroying other people. We commit the greatest evil by trying to escape from evil, by trying to create a paradise on earth 
we are literally looking for things to label evil so that once we've done that, we can fight them. Today our nation saw evil. We will not rest until this evil is driven from our world. And I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards. We demonize folks. We see them as the all-encompassing repositories of evil, the removal of which would make life on earth as it is in heaven. So more people have been killed in the name of God and country than by all the serial murderers put together. It's just a drop in the bucket compared to how much killing has gone on out of loyalty, patriotism, love for God and country. You're listening to episode 726 of Unwelcome Guests, The Flight from Death. I'm Robin Upton. Exceptionally this week, we begin with a dedication. This show is dedicated to Lily Pierce, a young woman whom I never met, but without whose tragic death on the roads I would not have made this show. In 2013, an unwelcome guest's listener, David Pierce, recommended a book to me that he had been recommended after his daughter's tragic death, Ernest Becker's Denial of Death, and at the time, perhaps due to my mother's cancer, I wasn't very assiduous in seeking a PDF or an audiobook, and I let the matter slip. Well, I've now followed the matter up and I'm very glad that I did so because I think that book is nothing less than a masterpiece. I can quite understand why the academic establishment didn't really want to have much to do with it at the time. Not helped, of course, Ernest Becker labelled a cultural anthropologist for the sake of having a label on him took a very cross-disciplinary and, I think, commendably honest approach, seeking wisdom from all quarters, which he brought to bear on the central topic of the fear of death. His main contention being, while our own mortality and fear of death is not much talked about, it is nevertheless an extremely important topic much thought about and psychologically repressed. Now, if that sounds slightly wishy-washy, hand-wavy, well, then I haven't done the man justice. His book is tightly argued, well-referenced, and cites a lot of other great thinkers from different academic disciplines, principally psychology, uh, also philosophy, cultural anthropology, literature... Uh, a wide range. As an introduction to Becker's thought, I've found a 90-minute film, The Flight from Death, which I'm going to be adapting for this show. I thought, let's begin with the voice of David Pierce. This is from an interview in 2012. The full interview is linked from this show's webpage, unwelcomeguests.net slash 726. We're just going to hear one short question. And this is from the Future Primitive podcast. Please talk about a practical way in which a person who is not 
in grief can communicate and be helpful to someone who has had a great grief? That's a fine question because um, it's most difficult for those who have not experienced some sort of a deep disconnection with with everything that they knew before to really relate to this because um, we are all sort of trained unconsciously uh, from the time we're small children to to act and think of a certain way in Western culture. And um, it, it's different in some of the other countries and cultures. Uh, uh, Norway is, uh, in some ways, a lot more open to the ideas of uh, grieving and, and recognizes that. Villages in Africa and in South America, some of the Latin countries, the Central American countries, um, and Spain, Italy, uh, they're a bit more open to to everyone being sort of aware that people die and grieve. Uh, in the United States, not so much. Uh, death is often talked about. Uh, movies, uh, you know, uh, horror films, uh, jokes about death and that kind of thing, but never really seriously. Uh, in fact, later on, I... Uh, after Lily died, I realized that those are a way of sort of talking about death, but avoiding the subject, finding ways to keep it in their minds, but sort of uh, diminish it somehow as a way of kind of triumphing over it without really having to face it. So it's most difficult for people who have not experienced deep grief to relate on the same wavelength. People may think, you know, that they're really sad for the person who has lost a loved one or, or a friend. And um, they may genuinely feel feel sorry for them and want to help, but oftentimes it's they don't really know where to go. Now, the longer in the tooth that I get, the more I come to see in Gatto's admonition that the inevitability of death is must be an important part of curriculum of what young people learn to become properly educated and it's one that circumstances taught me Uh, perhaps that's why I seem to understand this Um, in any case I would encourage you even if you live in a country such as the United States and here in Bangladesh when I discuss the way in which old people tend to be sent to homes surrounded by people of the same vintage more or less as a kind of warehousing Um, the general understanding is that this is a pretty barbaric way to deal with one's nearest and dearest and I must say I tend to agree now just before we hear the film I think I should point out the main two echoes of unwelcome guests themes that it set off in my mind Number one, you may not be surprised to hear, is money. How money is a proxy for immortality. They would call it an immortality symbol. Something that people can use to quell their fear of death. Never mind the fact that it won't work. Uh, As they will explain in the film, this fulfills a psychologically calming function. And the second echo is the war on terror, as we heard in episode 721. Those who organize false flags are not just looking at numbers of fatalities. They're also looking to communicate meaning 
and to instill fear. Well, I can't believe the importance of Becker's work has been lost on those who've spent so long in all those think tanks researching how to make people afraid. Now, this is a radio adaptation of a film which has been posted on YouTube, so if you'd like to watch the film itself and have internet access, then I shall link to the original from this show's webpage, unwelcomeguest.net slash 726. To have emerged from nothing, to have a name, consciousness of self, deep inner feelings, an excruciating inner yearning for life and self-expression. And with all this, yet to die. Transcendental Media presents a film by Patrick Shen and Greg Benick. Narrated by Gabrielle Byrne. Flight from Death. The Quest for Immortality. Humankind has always been restless. Never satisfied with our physical limitations, we have always strived for more. With machines we conquer gravity and travel faster and farther than any other animal. We explore the heavens, the last great frontier. Landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And we manipulate our own biology through medical science. In defiance of nature, we have manufactured the means to become rulers of the natural world. What is left to conquer? And are we satisfied? Since time immemorial, we have battled our greatest limitation. One which seems to render our efforts to overcome and conquer insignificant. Every day we participate in a multitude of activities to distance ourselves from harm and death. But beneath the surface, we are aware that these day-to-day -day strategies are doomed to fail. We will die eventually. And all of this will come to an end. Human beings find themselves in quite the predicament. We have the mental capacity to ponder the infinite, seemingly capable of anything, yet housed in a heart-pumping, breath-gasping, decaying body. We are godly, yet creaturely. It is perhaps the ultimate mystery. We may never know what death really is and whether it marks the end of everything or, as many believe, the beginning of something else. Yet we do know that death is something to be avoided. What are we to do with death? And why do we fear it? Merlin Mowry, Professor of Philosophy and Religion. If we don't even know what death is, then why should we fear it? Erwin D. Yalom, Existential Psychotherapist. The fear of death is absolutely ubiquitous. It's hardwired into us. For all the things that we don't know about what follows death, 
Uh, there, there are plenty of things we know about what precedes death to make it unwelcome and even uh, seem like an evil interruption, and that is um, life itself. Sam Keen, author and philosopher. At the gut level, my feeling is death is unacceptable. I did not sign that contract. I looked at the small print and everything else, it's unacceptable. Uh, that's just sort of a gut feeling in the, in, in the sense that we love life. Death is an insult to our spirit.